from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. You just arrived to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your rock star wannabe host, David Strausser, and this is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. Today, it's about empowerment. First, though, remember, please download the Shark Bite Biz app exclusively on the Android's Google Play Store. Yeah, just search for Shark Bite Biz, download the app, install it. Takes a second. You can get every single episode of the show, all the audio versions, the video versions, as well as all the snippets and stuff like that that we do. So let's get back to today's guest. It's an amazing podcast host that we have on our show today and a really incredible business growth advisor, which fits into the theme of this show, all about the three G's, personal growth, professional growth, and of course, business growth. So who do we have today? None other than Samantha Hartley. Samantha Hartley works with consultants who are ready to break through the plateau and multiply their revenue. Samantha helps them multiply their revenues without exhaustion by working with perfect clients on transformational engagements so that they can have profitable, joyful consultancies. It's not unusual for Samantha's clients to add 150 to 600K in their first year working with her. Other results do include crossing the multi-million dollar mark, turning a $22,000 offer into a 200K engagement, and adding 400K to another contract in just 24 hours. Samantha is a sought-after guest and the host of the Profitable Joy Consulting Podcast and Facebook group. Before starting her consulting business, Samantha worked in international marketing for the Coca-Cola Company. She lives in Martha Vineyard with her husband and her fur, not four, furry (laughs) children. So hey, without further delay, let's bring Samantha right on in here. Small Biz Spotlight. Samantha, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became Shark Bait. Thank you. I'm excited to be Shark Bait. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I'm really excited to have you on the show. This is actually cool for people that don't know. I guess they will find out now. We actually kind of did a little collaboration. So I'll be on your show, which we'll talk about later. You're coming on my show. And uh, I think based off the interview we've already recorded with you, we're going to have an awesome time. And totally awesome time. We have a ton of stuff in common and we're both really committed to helping businesses grow. So totally love it. So we have a tradition on this show. Everybody, including your favorite newscaster, Soledad O'Brien, has had to answer this question. Okay. What's your background? What's your experience? What do you do for a living? How'd you get there? Basically, in a nutshell, or can of worms, tell us what makes Samantha, Samantha. Oh my gosh, what a great question. So uh, I'll give you the short version of it, which is that um, I was uh, kind of a theater and um, languages person. I wanted to study Russian language because it was super cool when I was in college. I did. And then I went to study theater in Russia and Russian language. Well, study theater in Russia. So I did do that. And I was there for a student for many years. And then I got, well, not many, sometime. And then I got uh, hired by American companies who wanted um, Americans to oversee their interests in that Russian market. And then while I was there, I met the people from the Coca-Cola company. And then a thing that never happens ever I was a local hire um, who was hired as an expat. So I worked there um, in that market for a while. 
it was, uh, you know, you talk about these big transitions on your show and it was one of those really massive transitions because I knew that um, if I started to work for them, that it was going to change my life. And I wasn't convinced being kind of an artsy person that it was going to change my life in a way that I wanted. Um, but I thought it's really, you know, it's stupid to miss out on an opportunity like this. So I started to work for the Coca-Cola company in Russia. I had an amazing time there. It was a company owned bottler. We had a territory of, you know, 30 million people. And speaking of 30 million, we grew the business during the time I was there over three years from 30 to hundred million. So it was a really massive growth environment. And that really spoiled me for when I got to corporate and things at corporate really grow like 1% or 1.5%. So um, I was at corporate for about two years, hated it, just did not have a good time. Um, it's a, it's just all about the politics, David. And I like, I can do the politics, but they just, I'm good at the work, I would say. And so um, it was just too frustrating. So I left and like many of my clients, I left a corporate environment that uh, did not uh, uh, was not interested in new ideas or innovation. It was what we would now call toxic in terms of competitiveness and unsupportiveness and, and things like that. Uh, although I had some really great friends and colleagues. And so when I left, I did the thing that I always tell my clients to do is never burn your bridges. So when I uh, was ready, I took a year off and just kind of you know, rejuvenated myself. And then when I was ready to start working again, I, I reached out to my former colleagues and that's how I got my first consulting engagements. So I started doing international consulting for um, those kinds of companies. So working in New York City and uh, Athens, Greece and uh, in the Aegean Sea and in London uh, and then also in Atlanta. And then um, after a while, I, I realized that what was more fun for me and fulfilling was to work with smaller businesses. And that's where my business went. Yeah. You know, I feel a lot of the same way. And people that watch my show, you know, know my path, my international experience, live in that Mexico, Peru, and what I did with the consulting world, which is what we talked about a lot on, on your show. And I want to try to get some some comparisons of that. You know, first off, you know, being an expat working in Russia, how hard, how easy was that for you? Well, when I got there and you and I discussed this, like uh, you didn't speak the language at all. Now I had had four years of college level Russian. And when I got there, I would say I spoke like a dog, which was that I could understand everything, but I couldn't say anything. So after about three months, I became fluent. And so I was really, uh, um, a part of the culture. I've, I've felt close to um, people. And it, so it was easy for me to uh, get along in life. Sorry, what city? I was first, I was in, I, I went first to Leningrad, which became St. Petersburg while I was living there. And then we moved to um, Moscow, uh, my, my roommate and I just for more adventures. And then I was, I was in Moscow the, the rest of the time that I was there. Which did you like better? Out of curiosity. Well, I mean, Moscow is just one of the best places in the world in terms of vibrance. But if you want to see something gorgeous, like beats, beats Venice by a million miles, Leningrad is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. And it was funny because I, when I, I remember I arrived from the airport, I, so I went there, I didn't know anyone. I was being met hopefully at the airport, um, by somebody. And, uh, but you know, if, if that contact hadn't shown up, I would have been like alone in a foreign country. So, um, I, I, I arrived there and on the bus ride to my dormitory, my student dormitory, we passed the winter palace. And I, as I went past it, I just burst into tears, which was really unexpected. I wasn't like 
a sentimental person. So it just, I, I had a, a love for the country from the minute I got there. There's some beautiful, you know, architectural styles out there in that part of the world. And, uh, you know, I'm not a big artsy person myself. I would say I'm a creative person, but not a big, like, into architectural art. But I mean, there are things that you just can't deny, like, wow, this is beautiful. And some of those, uh, you know, I don't know what they are, palaces or whatever, but, you know, you see those dome buildings and stuff. It's it's so, so beautiful. One thing I've always heard about uh, Russia, and maybe you can dispel this as a mistruth, you know, a mistruth, but, uh, um, you know, this happens with Mexico all the time. Whereas, you know, people say this about Mexico, but it's not actually true. And, you know, one thing I hear with Russia is that if you're in the cities, yeah, you know, there's money, it's beautiful. But as soon as you get out of the city, then it's a, a very, very, very poor country. Is there any truth to that? Is it mixed truth, half truth, or is that really how it is? I think it's uh, it's not inaccurate. Let's just say that. It's, you know, as a country, what they really have uh, always tried to do, I mean, for hundreds of years, is um, uh, send money to the cities. Uh, and so that has happened in uh, really negative ways with collectivization, which was made when basically they just went to farms and took everything um, during World War II. And so people starved to death all the way up until modern times when, you know, they do try to make things comfortable for the people in the cities, which is where a lot of the bosses are um, first to the detriment of people in the villages. But I've been to villages. uh, I've been all over um, the former Soviet Union and what is now Russia and into the republics and places like that. And so I've seen a lot of places and, you know, we would call a lot of them uh, you know, third world country looking, but, um, but they had stuff and, and got by and things like that. I don't think it's acceptable in terms of like how I would want the, the country to run itself. But, uh, um, yeah, it's def- it's definitely that way. So obviously, you know, their style of government over there is different than what we experience here in the United States. Um, but that being said, is it a centralized country as far as, everything runs through Mexico or Moscow. So like, for example, in Mexico, yeah, you have cities like Guadalajara, Tijuana, Monterrey, you know, places like that. But realistically, especially with any large corporations, um, you know, it goes down through Mexico City. Like it's centralized and then the power stretches out. Like we grant you this authority from Mexico City. And it, it's, you know, critical having connections and, and people like that, depending what you're doing, obviously. Uh, but for the most part, it is very important to have those connections down there in a place like that. Is it the same type of structure like that in Russia? Well, in the way that I experienced it working for the Coca-Cola company, yes, it was very centralized. The Moscow is where the um, the company-owned bottler was, and then um, the uh, regional office is there. And so everything really kind of emanated from there. And that was kind of a mirror. There's a lot of countries that that, that kind of run like that. And I think the United States is a little bit different as in, yes, I mean, we have Washington, D.C. as our capital, but I mean, New York's a hub, Chicago's a hub, D- Dallas is a, you know, but we have various different uh, business capitals, depending really what the sector is almost. And some places are a mix of different things. That That's the one thing I really do like 
about the the U.S. that it, it, it it's a little bit more diverse as far as geography goes, or the the business capital of this or that. It's not like everything has to be coming from Mexico City or you're nobody. Right, and it's evolving, which is a thing that I really like. So, um, you know, a city like Boston, which is near where I live now, uh, is you know, is really um, growing for certain industries and it's really well known for certain things, then, you know, they can pull some of the focus away from Silicon Valley. And then, uh, you know, uh, in North Carolina, they have that. They have their own special name for North Carolina. I mean, uh, for Silicon Valley there, forgive me for not remembering that, but um, but, you know, that there are these uh, tech hubs and business hubs and uh, that are, as you're saying, like spread around. And I do think that's um, it's more I don't know. I think it's more interesting. Yeah, 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 definitely. Definitely. So let's change gears a little bit here because, um, you know, you are here uh, not just to educate us about Russia and your personal transformation journey, but also to talk about business. And you are a, you know, business growth advisor, which I find that very interesting because, you know, with what I do with, with my day job of VRP sales, I view myself, I always tell the customer like, this is a growth partnership. My job is to help you streamline your business practice, uh, you know, business processes, help you automate things as much as we can, take some of the mundane work out. And if we're doing our job right, it's going to free up your people instead of filling out spreadsheets, you're going to have them do profit generating activities instead. So really, that's where I view that it's a growth partnership, because if I help you grow, then we're doing our job. And it also means that you end up, you know, you're going to need more licenses, more services, more stuff of us because we're helping you grow. And that's where I really view that it's a partnership. So, you know, with you being a business growth advisor, do you view any of that for you? Like, how would you define that? I mean, I, I have uh, clients that I call business growth partners. And I started that term because I wanted to work with people kind of like they uh, uh, as a shark on Shark Tank. I was like, I will come into your business and I'll advise you. Um, and uh, I don't necessarily always do it for an equity position. You know, sometimes it's just a, um, a, a regular investment, but I wanted to be able to partner with them. You know, I started, I came out of marketing uh, and, but also there was so much business strategy and what I did in, in small business growth. And, you know, as you know, from working with small businesses, a lot of times, uh, you know, a $2 million business, like the owner is every role in that business. And so even though you're talking with them about how to grow the business, you're also talking about hiring. And uh, so I'm doing HR and I'm doing um, sometimes IT, like all the crazy roles that we end up taking on as advisors. And so with my business growth partner clients, we work together for um, at least a year on specific initiatives and it's, it, it transcended marketing. So I changed my, you know, title from marketing consultant to business growth partner, or business growth advisor, because it just was uh, so limited. I actually changed the name of the business as well, because, um, what I'm doing is so much more than that. And I wanted them to expect more. So in our work, it's like everything that you need, if they come to me and they're like, I'm doing, you know, 750,000. My client Carrie came to me. She has a small it company. They were doing 750,000. And she said, you know, we want to double, which is what I promised my clients. Uh, yeah, we want to double too. And I was like, okay, so here are the things that we need to do over the course of this year to do that. Uh, and that's going to be the way they did their contracts, the way they did um, pricing. How, how do you keep them accountable then? Like what kind of things do you have in place as far as the accountability to be like, well, you know, we're not hitting these metrics because I told you to do this, this, and this, but you only did this and this. So I call those grown-up conversations. 
some people might call that coaching, but I really say sometimes we need to have grown up conversations. And that is when instead of being like, Hey, everything's cool and fun. I need to say what's going on. Uh, you're not, you've, you've canceled two meetings in a row. Uh, nothing's happening. Let's, let's talk that what's, what's going on. Uh, and then we have those and those can sound like anything. And one of the reasons why, um, I moved to working with clients for a year was because if you work for them for three months, you, you won't necessarily get to that kind of level. Like everybody's on still like the relationship high for the first three months. And like, you may achieve some things and you may not, but everybody loves everybody and we go away. Bye. But when you're in there for a year, like we're going to get into the hard slog territory. And it takes me, I had one client who it took me a while. Uh, she's another one. She, um, she grew by five. X um, in her business and uh, her work with me in the first year. But I was like, it took me a little while to catch on to her self-sabotage, her particular, you know, all of us have our self-sabotage strategies. Self-sabotage is huge. So she like, but she just, she disguised it really well. And so I was missing it for a while. And then I finally caught on. So she would say, I really, uh, I really want to focus on this low ticket program. I really want to focus on this low program. And I was like, here's where the opportunity is. It's up here. It's up here. So we spent a long time going around and around with that. And it turned out she was afraid to sell. And I said, here's the deal. You just, I'm, I'm going to push you off of the diving board into the water. You've got to go and do this. Uh, here's all the support I'm giving you. She did that. And that's when she went and sold like, 200,000 in like a weekend or something. So uh, it's, you know, I hold, I hold them accountable. The first thing that holds them accountable is like, they really want this. They're motivated for it. But the second thing is, and you know, I'm known for tough love is I'm going to get in there and call you out on your stuff because uh, I, what I'm committed to is what the dream that they tell me. And so if, if you get in the way of me helping you achieve the dream you said you wanted, I'll move you. <laughs> right? Don't be the obstacle because what I'm advocating for is the brand. I'm advocating for the, the, the business, the concept, the dream. Um, and you know, a lot of us will freak out along the path. Like, I know I said I wanted that, but no, I'm kind of, kind of reconsidering because it's really hard. Okay. But I, you and I said we wanted the dream and that's what we, that's what we do. Right. I, I think a lot of business owners or even directors, managers, uh, executives that, um, a lot of, their self-sabotage sometimes is their ego. And when you confront them, when you have someone with a, a big ego and, and you're kind of trying to hold them accountable, how has that been challenging for you throughout the years? How, do you, how have you worked your way around that? So here's what an ego is. Ego is our identity, right? So an ego isn't a bad thing. And a big ego is not a bad thing. I just need to make sure that that big ego is aligned with what we all say we want. That it's healthy and not toxic. Exactly. So a, a, a toxic ego is, I said I wanted that, but here's all my behaviors. So if all of their behaviors are out of alignment, then we're going to have grown up conversations. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all about uh, firing people if it's not a right fit. Like we, this, we, we can break up this relationship, but the point is that we commit really hard and say what we want. But if somebody, and I have a pretty good um, discernment, in the, in, in the early stages uh, for what makes, I, I call them perfect clients. Perfect fit clients is all that we work with. And this is what I teach my, my clients to do is only work with perfect fit clients. Why? Because anyone less than perfect is almost always going to cost you more time, more money, more effort, more joy than working with someone who's a perfect fit. So they come in looking okay, but uh, you, you cannot take on a, a dreadful client. So how do I know who's a good client? In my early days, I made all the mistakes for you 
So when, uh, when I'm interviewing a client, what I, what I'll tell my clients is you'll notice they kind of give you a vibe of someone that, you know, and you're like, who's this person reminding me of? And then you realize, oh, they're reminding me of, and then a name will come to mind. And I have three big ones. And if they remind me of any of them, you know, I, I don't always call it a red flag, but I'll call it a yellow flag. So if you get a red flag from somebody, like they do, they say unethical things or they do anything that you're like, oh, this is a hard pass right out of there. But, right. but if they just remind me of someone who was terrible, I think, well, sometimes I can, you know, I've evolved, I've grown. And so maybe what I'm attracting is also evolving. So if they're a yellow flag, then ask questions. And then I'll just ask more questions. It's a job interview. When someone comes to work with you as a potential client, they think they're interviewing you and that's cool. But what's really happening is for my clients, we're saying, is this person going to be the right fit for me? Because we can't afford to take on clients who are going to be not joyful, but we also can't afford to take on clients who aren't going to get results. So the results are what make the work. This is a business partnership. We're not here to just be friends. So if you talk to somebody and you're like, I don't believe they're going to get results. And I'll tell you one of the biggest things. When I was a younger, when I was a baby consultant, um, I would fall for the mighty mouse thing if they would be like, well, nothing's ever worked for us. And I'd be like the, you know, the mighty mouse theme here, I come to save the day. So I would hear that in my head. I'll be like, well, I'll be the one who will get them results. And now if I talk with somebody and I say, well, uh, what have you done before in the past? So what has worked for you? And if they're like, well, nothing. And I'm like, well, have you ever worked with a coach before? How'd those experiences go? Well, no, nothing really. I'm like, okay, I'm not mighty mouse. I'm the come if, if nothing has ever worked for you, then the common denominator is you. And I'll usually say it doesn't seem like I'm the best one to help you. That that's one thing. You just said something that I think is a good nugget right there. A lot of people are blissfully blind, I'll call it. And they think everything else is the problem, but they really need to be taking a hard look in the mirror because it is actually them. And I mean, I've had those moments with uh, myself, for example, where it's like, you know, how can I keep uh, upsetting everybody? And then, you know, everybody's always cranky around me that it's like, oh, okay, well, it's me. That's why, you know, um, and with my first marriage, for example, my, my previous boss, he's like, well, I can tell you exactly the days that you have no sales. It's because of the fact that, uh, you know, you were having a rough time at home and it's like, it shows, you know what I mean? So it was kind of like reflecting in the mirror and then realizing, okay, I've got to change. And that's one of the reasons why I think the first major growth I had was learning how to separate motions from business and not do knee jerk reactions just because something went bad at home. So, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a fun, fun journey, you know, self-discovery is often, I think what people look forward the least to does that make sense yeah <laughs> it does make sense but i i personally i look forward most to that i'm in it for the self-discovery journey and for the evolution and for like i'm always like bring on big change now i'm sometimes sorry i said big with such emphasis but i really really love um massive change and massive transformation now, in the slightest way, though, what I would say is in the very least, I do like growth oriented people. So we're talking about business growth and people who want business growth need to realize um, that that is involving like you. You're the business. You, the owner, are the business. No matter how that big, big that business is, the organization takes on the character of its leader. And so a lot of times the limitations 
almost always, the limitations of the leader are going to be the limitations of the business. And so I'm, I attract to me because I talk about that so much on my podcast and in my, in my work and in all of my um, basically posts, I will talk about the fact that um, I love growth and um, we grow when we, the business can't grow unless you do. And so I attract people to myself who are like, all right, I'm ready to do this. I don't know what I need to do. And a lot of times it's, um, it's boundaries, uh, but it's also awareness, like uh, being aware of the kind of things that your boss was so helpful to tell you. Yeah, awareness is key. Sometimes people aren't aware. Again, I use myself as an example. Um, I had uh, some breathing problems earlier on in, in my 20s. I mean, I still have it today, but whenever I was on the, the phone with somebody or in person, you know, I was always... You know, like huffing, popping, and it wasn't that I was out of breath or anything. Just how I breathed. I never noticed anything was uh, wrong. And uh, one of my bosses was like, "Hey, you know, you should uh, go get that checked out." In fact, here's a. Uh, it was down in Mexico, so they're like, "Here's forty bucks. You know, go to my doctor and get checked out." And it was basically just allergies and stuff like that. So now I take Singular every day, and I use an nasal spray. Like a steroid nasal spray and bam, it's gone. But, you know, for many years, that was a little bit of a uh, prohibitor for me. And I was never aware of that until someone actually had the courage to mention it to me. I love it. And it's really nice that you, uh, to me, they wouldn't say that to you unless you had an inviting essence and so that they felt like there was the opportunity to say that to you. But it's really important that we um, surround ourselves with people who will tell us the truth. Uh, and I think, you know, the step further that I would take it, and this is where we might get a little bit woo is that really everything is mirroring back to you yourself at all times. And so when people come to me and they're like, all my clients are like needy, this and that. And I'm like, well, how are you enabling that? So they're just mirroring back what you are putting out there. Uh, or like, um, you know, people who are like, this doesn't happen in my world because this is consulting, but um, I'm a part of the internet marketing world. And so, you know, if we talk about people getting refunds or coming, coming back to you and stuff like that, I'm like, well, you, do you ask for refunds? Uh, or, you know, people are wasting my time. I'm like, do you waste people's times? So oh, I love when, when customers ask me for a refund, I'm like, dude, sorry. Yeah. It's SAP. They don't give refunds. I mean, <laughs> we they're like, we'll, 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 <laughs> so uh, like, I mean, Go ahead. You can try. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're a $5 million business. You bought the software. I mean, there's nothing I could do. And I feel bad. Sometimes I feel bad, but I mean, just you do buyer's remorse. We buy the software right away. I mean, I can't um, get the money back from SAP, for example. And that is always, doesn't happen very often, but it's like once a year, once every two years, something like that. You always get that one client that, you know, buys it and then they disappear only for two months. And then they're like, yeah, we decided that we're not going to go forward with it. Can, uh, can I get a refund? It's like, dude, we already bought the software two months ago. Like that's a done deal. You own it. Right. Well, you, as we were saying earlier, like you're unique, he's unique in your life, but that guy is probably doing that all the time. So it's, it's almost always a pattern with that, those people. So, oh, yeah. And that's something that I've noticed as well, too. You know, the projects that have blown up on us, because let's face it, I mean, when we were working in tech, not every anybody that tells you every single impl implementation has been perfect, they are lying 100%. You know, there is never, yes, I've done 
plenty of projects on time under budget you know even uh but you're always gonna have one that goes off the the side rails it could be our fault more than likely and hopefully it's a customer's fault not our fault but uh you know there there's or it could be shared faults you know it, it could be some of us some of them you know depending what the issue is but nobody's ever batting a thousand on it you know what i mean no no and what's funny is i have a lot of clients who do um it stuff and it implementations and it's taught me so much about well project management in in um in small way but really what it teaches you about is people management and how much uh it implementations are like they're exactly like the hr things that we're doing you know anything that's involving people is necessarily complicated and it's the tech part is usually the simplest part of all that and getting people to change is almost always the complicated part of it oh yeah especially if they're using the same software for 40 years and it's like green screen software and they're like yeah you know these people have been using it for 40 years but the owner new owner like a son just inherited his father's business or daughter just inherited it is her father's business you know and it's like we need good software like we've been using this for 40 years then all the older people that have been there for 40 years are like freaking out like oh no i don't want to learn something else are they going to eliminate my job because it's going to be automated and you know it brings unnecessary fear you know the business process automation and automation doesn't necessarily mean i'd say 99 percent of the time does not mean the elimination of jobs. It just means that you're going to focus your energy on other activities that are going to be more productive for the business instead. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned earlier, revenue generating. Let's let's focus on that instead of manual processes. Right, right, exactly. So one thing uh, you mentioned uh, earlier was uh, the words profitable and joyful. So I want to get into what are your three keys to profitable and joyful entrepreneurship? Well, I'll explain first that I chose profitable and joyful because uh, we all know that a business should be profitable. Uh, and yet a lot of people don't feel like it necessarily has to be joyful. And uh, so it's kind of a newsflash to people of like, I'm if, if a business is not joyful, then you're doing it wrong. And it, it can have uh, joyful doesn't mean we're always happy. But it does mean the sense like I, I always talk about this idea of like soul joy, like you feel like you're aligned with your purpose when you're joyful. So I'm in the hard slog with a client or I'm like, crap, I got to have this like heart to heart. I told you these grown up conversations with somebody or I have to fire some like, it, there's a, you know, I'm managing my team, there's all kinds of stuff that maybe isn't I'm not happy that I'm doing or I'm not having the most amount of fun. But I do feel like I'm serving a larger cause. So that's profitable and joyful. And the things that make a business profitable and joyful, the number one thing is working with perfect clients. So the fastest way to be not profitable and not joyful is to have a dreadful client who is, um, you know, they're uh, asking for more stuff, they're wasting time, they're making you your team wait on things like it's, uh, it's the greatest determiner and um, businesses from all kinds of businesses have studied this, that the wrong customer, the wrong client um, is, is, can completely destroy your profits. And they can, obviously they make everybody unhappy and unhappy people are also not, um, doing great work. So that's really the number one thing. 
the from there, I think profitable and joyful is about um, I'm working with consultants. And so what they're doing is uh, is a, a service um, that that advice and it may be, you know, um, it take the form of uh, intellectual property, like um, trainings that they're doing and things like that. But flowing that expertise and that genius and feeling like you're doing like the right work in the world is the next thing that makes us joyful. So I like for people to have um, we call them transformational offers. So bringing their work into the clients that completely change things when they're done. Uh, I don't like us for, for us to attack like a little problem, like, Hey, we can do that training in a weekend because like, okay, that's like good. But like, where's the big thing that we want to have happen? You heard me say in the beginning, I love big change. Uh, and, um, there's value in solving bigger problems, which is the third thing that makes us happy when you're fully compensated for the work that you're doing, when you're really, um, fulfilled in the work and you're compensated accordingly. So when we do these transformational engagements, it's a transformational offer. Plus um, it's usually going to have a big price tag where those are usually minimum of a hundred thousand dollars and uh, a year long. So for a lot of my clients, it can be, you know, uh, probably averaging in the $250,000 a year range. Uh, And then I have um, one client, the one I told you, um, she and I five X her business in the first year that we worked together. She has is now doing million dollar engagements. Now they're over the course of three years, as she says, but they're still doesn't mean they're not a million bucks. So she'll come into those organizations and say, um, the things that you're talking about here are are not solvable, you know, it, with a snap of the fingers. This is like uh, we're going to need to solve this over time. So it's going to be like a three to five year time horizon. But what we'll do in the first few years is this. So she lays that out for them, and then. That's going to be a million dollar engagement. And those organizations, she's working with a lot of manufacturing. Those organizations are going to be fundamentally different when she's done and, uh, and are like, um, what I love about my work is that I didn't want to work with corporations. When I left Coke, I was like, that's the last time I want to see the inside of a corporation. And I, like, I'm an S corp, so I'm a corporation, but I mean, these like billion dollar, like Coca-Cola's and Facebook's and those and Google's where, where my clients work. Uh, those are my clients as clients. But what I did want to do was I wanted to make things better for the me inside of those organizations. So the worker bee who was like, I show up, I work my, whatever my schedule is. I didn't want them to be as miserable as I was. And so my clients are making things amazing for the people who work inside of those companies. Right, right. Totally understand. So one thing I want to circle back on from the beginning is you said that you really kind of found your niche working with small businesses rather than, you know, larger clients, like you just said, the Googles of the world. Is that because, I mean, for me, I like working the small to midsize enterprise business space because I feel that's where I can have a much bigger impact than with a large enterprise type company. Is that kind of why you go with that direction as well too? Well, uh, I was too frustrated that the large companies that I worked with would not implement. And uh, it happened time and time again. And I wanted to find a company that was the size where it was really critical for them to take action on this. So I, I don't work with businesses that are larger than about $12 million a year because I want to work with the principal. I want to work with the CEO and I want to see that thing happen. Uh, so that's where I found um, my joy. And then the more I worked, the more I realized that who I really want to lift up are uh, women in business and uh, consultants. And so that's who I tend to work with now. Uh, the kind of company that um, maybe is a, does landscaping or something like you might be hearing outside my door right now. No, no, I actually, I can't. Let's see. I'm, I'm trying to listen. Don't hear it at all, which is uh, interesting because we've had a an entrepreneur landscape company 
And he was telling us like, oh yeah, you know, I started my own grasses when I was like 12 and uh, built it up and sold it for $20 million. And like, what? That's crazy. Those, I mean, those businesses are so hot and, um, and growing because, uh, you know, if you go to the right neighborhood, you can't get people to show up consistently to do the work. And uh, those people who have businesses that I think they have to probably have the right essence. And again, this is the stuff that like, I, I love this stuff. It's super interesting to me, like all this great resignation and return to work and stuff like that. I'm like, what's the relationship between a company and the people who work for them? And if you can create uh, a good relationship and get people to show up for you consistently, you're going to have a competitive advantage like nobody's business. Yeah, yeah. I think the the key word is emotional intelligence with your employees. I, I think that's what a lot of, and maybe it's because so many people have been remote uh, the last few years that, that, that companies, whether it's managers or whether it's HR or whoever, I, I think that companies kind of lack a little bit of that emotional intelligence right now that perhaps, you know, pre COVID, cause they were more in the office, more in touch, you know, they had their finger on the pulse a little bit. They could read their people better. They could understand they had more empathy. I think that's the one negative trend about the, you know, everything being virtual or working from home is that, you know, it, it, it kind of hurt. I think the, the impact with upper management and how they think and, and feel towards people that might be more on, on the front lines, but that doesn't necessarily mean that work from home or anything like that is bad. That's something that the company itself then has to change within its upper management. Well, what I think is so amazing about what you just said is that the the upper the reason who's freaking out right now is that the the heads of these companies are freaking out because they don't have the ability to micromanage their people. But what you just said is it's not the people who are disconnected from what's really happening. It's the leaders who are disconnected from what's happening and what they need to do is have more empathy. I, I think you're exactly right. The problem is that they're, you know, it's kind of our, our change uh, example from the IT people of the older um, guard. And by the way, plenty of young people don't like to change either, uh, especially when you're changing their technology under them. But the change that has been brought on, um, like go with the flow, like uh, read the room, like adapt to the changes. And I think the fact that they're not able to micromanage, they're not able to do things like they we always did them. Like they can't, they can't just like, okay, well, so how are we doing things now? And I think that adaptability is going to be a big separator between uh, who succeeds and who doesn't. It's not going to be the case that everybody's going to return to work. What's going to happen is it's always going to be hybrid. And so People will need to get used to it. And I'm amazed when they keep resisting and keep fighting this. Yeah, yeah, I am. I, I absolutely am, too. I think we may have talked about this uh, during our episode on your show. But, uh, you know, as I said, even Soledad O'Brien, you know, was like, unless you're somebody like at a grocery store or a pharmacist or something like that, that has the work in a physical location, business professionals, I mean, the future is going to be task orientated instead of eight hours a day or 40 hours a week orientated. And I personally, I like that, you know, if you're, I mean, 
if someone completes all their tasks, why are you just going to pay them to be either less efficient or twiddle their thumbs, you know, give them more tasks or, uh, you know, or let them be free, you know, one or the other, just don't make them sit there doing nothing. That's how I view it. I, I, I do the exact same thing. And it's the reason why I don't let anybody do time-based pricing. So you're, I don't want, uh, most of my clients no longer do hourly, although some people do when they come to me, they're doing hourly. So um, we immediately change away from hourly. We don't, I don't want to do any day rate, uh, any kind of time-based pricing, because what you want to get to is uh, a value-based pricing. If someone's paying you a hundred thousand dollars, uh, do you want to get the work done faster or do you want it to take like all 12 months? Uh, do you want me to be here on site all day long? Do you want longer meetings? This is another thing that's really evolved. So we've moved away from that time-based pricing into more value-based pricing. Uh, Instead of uh, what what we find is that the clients they they um, consultants very often want to make more like give more stuff have more deliverables and give more stuff or have more meetings and what they've found is like the clients don't want more meetings like we're extra in their lives and so they want to have as few meetings as possible uh, and um, a lot of my clients have moved from having um, hour long or God forbid but more than an hour long meeting uh, and closing and. Uh, reducing those to like 45 minutes or half an hour. That surprised me. Like you just said that the, those compressed meetings, like, I, I don't know how many people have said like, Oh, we're going to have an hour long meeting. And it's like, why it's going to take us like 10 minutes to discuss this, you know, <laughs> and then we're done. It, it, first of all, and if you have an hour, it won't take you 10 minutes to discuss it because Parkinson's law or the law of uh, packing your suitcases, if you're me, uh, says the task grows to fill the amount of time we have to fill it. So I had a, a coaching relationship years ago where uh, it was, I think it was 10 or 15 minute calls. And I thought, oh my God, I was used to hour long coaching calls. We'd be done before the, sh the tiny amount of time. Uh, later, I worked with, um, you know, a much more sophisticated coach who was like, it's, it's um, somewhere between um, 20 and 30 minutes for the session. And again, 18 minutes. And I was like, well, I'm done. Bye. We don't need to be discussing things and you don't need to be chit chatting. And I think, again, the to me, some of the benefits of the pandemic has been like, dude, I got a lot of other stuff going on outside of this camera that you can see. And so why don't we like just get to the point and get out of here? And I personally I'm an efficiency person, so I personally love that. I don't need the, the small talk. I don't need the chit chat. I, you know, I love to bond with my people, but I also like get in, get out. So anytime somebody makes an hour long appointment with me who isn't, you know, it's not the client. Uh, it's somebody who's working for me. I'm like, it's not going to be an hour. <laughs> right. Totally feel you there. So, hey, Samantha, this has been amazing. I think we've learned so many awesome things from you, from business, from Russia, uh, to just general discussion. I really loved it. I want to thank you personally for being on. Please tell everybody out there, what's your podcast? Where can they find it? What's the name of your business again? And where they can find that too? Cool, thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, my business is my name. So it's samanthahartley.com. And um, my podcast is called Profitable Joyful Consulting, reasonably so. You can find that in all the places where you find podcasts, Spotify, Apple, uh, and Amazon. And also it's a video podcast like yours. So I love this format. And you can yeah. find me on YouTube at Profitable Joyful Consulting. Yep. And we will have the link down below as always in the description. Samantha, hey, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story. I tell you what. You speak fast. So even though this was like a 40-ish minute interview, like yeah. it's jammed packed. I loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. It was great to be on Shark Bite Biz.
Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Wow, that was an incredible chat with Samantha, wasn't it? I loved it. First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out, because you know Shark Bite Biz is the greatest kept secret in the world of small business, please do me a favor, share us out to your friends, your colleagues, your family, anywhere that you dwell on the interweb, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Minds, anywhere you go, send out this episode as well too, because we can only grow if you end up helping us out or give us a super thanks. That little heart-shaped button with a dollar sign on YouTube, hit that dollar, $3, $5, whatever you can. Every dollar helps us keep doing all the magic that we're doing. Now let's get back to our rock star guest, Miss Samantha Hartley. First, make sure you look for the crossover episode of me on Samantha's show, which, yes, this this interview is actually airing first, but I interviewed on her show before she interviewed on mine. Kind of got those uh, crisscrossed there, but it's all good because I, both so, uh, shows are totally solid with some incredible information from both of us. And really, crossovers in the podcast world, they are awesome. It really allowed us us to have a deeper connection as we did both of these interviews. So secondly, I want to say I love what Samantha is doing. So many consultants out there are struggling. When I did it, okay, I would work 40, sometimes even 60 hours a week performing work for clients. Then I'd spend another 10 to 20 hours a week trying to find a new business, a new client, and win a new project. I was so overworked. I was killing myself. I really wish at that time in my life that I understood the work smarter, not harder philosophy that somebody like Samantha teached me, you know, could have teached me, and what she does teach and how she teaches her clients how to prosper joyfully. Because for me, as an independent consultant with my own agency, it was not joyful. It was the most stressful thing. Yeah, I made good money. I did a lot of fun traveling. I did some amazing stuff, but it was so stressful knowing that, okay, well, this contract's coming to an end on this date, and I need to get a new project to fill that bucket or else I'm going to have a problem paying the bills. And, you know, it was always, you know, that chase, that you know, that just never, never really ended up until I started working for my current company, Vision 33. And if I had somebody like Samantha coaching me back then, chances are I probably wouldn't be working for a actual company right now. I would still be in my own business growing it. Yeah, I have my own business with the podcast and the coffee and stuff like that. But I'm talking about being an independent consulting agency, you know, today. You know, I'm not though. And instead, what I ended up doing was I made a pivot. And that entrepreneur feeling, that entrepreneur experience that I had, I actually used that as a, you know, a critical strength of mine to, to, I guess you could say use it as my advantage for working for a company that I'm using to grow this whole Northeast region for Vision 33. And it's worked out quite 
well because I am in business owner type mode and how I manage our team, manage our prospects, manage our clients, manage the region, the P&L, all that type of stuff. So, you know, it is possible to work for somebody and still be an entrepreneur. Just because you have someone else signing your paychecks doesn't mean that you're not an entrepreneur in my mind. Uh, but it, I think most of us would agree you'd like to be signing your own paychecks. That's one of the topics that we really discussed more in detail on Samantha's show. So I'll leave that at there and you can kind of check it out when it airs on her on her podcast. Uh, but it comes down to nobody knows everything, okay? If you are struggling, and I know there's a lot of people out there, a lot of people that are watching, that are fans of Shark Bite Biz, that run independent consultancies or are two, three, four, five-person shop, if you're out there struggling, reach out to somebody like Samantha. Put that ego, put that pride away, because I'm telling you, the ROI of getting some professional help, somebody that can help you move your business to the next level, somebody like Samantha Hartley, okay, it will pay off dividends to you. I wish I would have done it. That being said, you know, the experience that I've had uh, with Vision 33, I've had a ton of professional growth. And since I didn't have a coach when I did my own independent consultancy, this has been amazing for me. I've, I've loved it. I've grown so much. It's allowed me to experiment, to learn, trial, error, fail. You know, it, it's a, it's solid. I mean, I, I couldn't really ask for more, except maybe just being the owner of the company. <laughs> but Outside of that, I think we're all good. Awesome stuff, Samantha. I love what you're doing, helping small businesses grow. Please make sure you check out her website and her podcast. As always, a link will be down below. Question of the day. Did you learn on your own or did you hire a coach like Samantha? Leave a comment down below on YouTube. Do you want to be on the show? If so, send out an email to interviews at sharkbitefiz.com. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, please do us a favor. Besides liking, subscribing, you know, hit the join button. For three bucks a month, you can become a baby shark or hit that super thanks button. Throw a couple bucks our way to allow us to pay for our production costs. Y'all know this by now, but I'll tell you once again, I'm David Strasser. This is Shark Bite Biz, and we'll see you all next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story. 